You're listening to Under the Radar Podcast, where artists share their childhood memories, musical inspirations, and the milestones that help shape them and their music. I'm your host, Celine Teoblocki. The desire to change that perspective, I think, came from lockdowns and this sort of collective navel-gazing where everyone was just like so self-absorbed. And that was something that I didn't want to deal with so much. It became ridiculous how much I just had to keep to looking at myself and sitting with myself and the anxiety that that brought was difficult. And so there was this opportunity to maybe be less inward looking and consider the time that I'm writing about in sunlight from a broader perspective about what has been like for people to just grow up right now. And the idea that your late teens and early 20s are supposed to be the greatest moment of your life is such a lie for so many people. And then what do you do when it's not the best time of your life? Sleeping, sitting up. Shaking other hand He said it looks like I've been drinking So wasn't that the plan How's it for an intro? Hello, my name's Caleb. I sing in a band called Spacey Jane. We're here on Under the Radar podcast, having a great chat. We released a record called Here Comes Everybody on AWOL in June of last year, 2022. Australian band Spacey Jane were making good strikes in the lead-up to their anticipated debut Sunlight when COVID happened and Western Australia, the state which had the strictest and longest lockdown, closed their borders for almost two years. It's a familiar story. Artists and musicians, especially those who had new albums coming out and tours planned, were then left completely untethered. Kayla Harper, Spacey Jane's frontman, had a complete crisis of confidence. Here Comes Everybody, only their second album, artfully unpacks the end of a relationship, familial tensions, and figuring out where one belongs in a world unraveling faster than you. Caleb zeroes in on a millennial experience where coming of age intersects with the twin stresses of a global pandemic and climate change. It struck a chord with his peers at home and abroad. But as the band gets bigger, can this excavation of one's own personal struggles so publicly take its toll? Before we get into that with Caleb, we go back to his childhood. Raised by evangelicals who followed the strict principles of an Arizona-based church, Caleb grew up a world away 400 miles from Perth in the seaside town of Geraldton. So what was your childhood like growing up in Geraldton? I think there's a few ways to look at it. Geraldton as like an environment to grow up in is quite a beautiful place. It's a smallish town, maybe 30,000 people when I was there. Right on the, on the coast, it feels quite wild and something that Perth is sort of already known for, that isolation, that kind of independence, that's even stronger in Geraldton, I think. And I sort of grew up, you know, just playing in the street and in the yard and being in the ocean. And I really enjoyed that. Mm. But I also grew up in a church that has uh, quite a reputation that's sort of perhaps at odds with the sunny disposition that Geraldton is. So we've had a couple of guests in the past, like Julian Baker was one that talked about it a lot, and Lucy Dacus as well, just about growing up with uh, quite strict church. Like someone like Julian Baker really enjoyed it in a lot of ways until Mm. like later. Mm. How did religion sort of affect you? 
I think in so many ways, I'm fundamentally shaped by that experience. The way that I used to see the world, specifically in relation to how I think of people's like character, their mistakes, their desire to be a better person, how they interact with the world, whether or not they're able to make excuses for who they are. In the church, there's this real sort of baseline understanding that you're a sinner. Mm. You are inherently evil and your mistakes aren't mistakes. They are tied to the fact that you as a person are intrinsically broken. And that is a a pretty horrible way to see people and things. That's something that I sort of had to untie myself from. It's incredible what that does in terms of how you think about guilt and how you think about forgiveness. And I think I used to catastrophize about the world at large and like my mistakes and my things that have gone wrong because you give them such weight. Then I sort of have the church to thank for my love of music and the fact that mm-hmm. I play. And that's where I first played on stage. And the first time I worked with a band, there's so much music always around me. And so I owe it that. As a kid, what would a perfect day have been like for you? I had a really good friend who lived around the corner called Daniel and our house backed up onto quite a large plot of bushland and we had built these sort of cubbies and we had bikes and little (laughs) walkie-talkies. We would just spend hours just out there and then it'd be like someone's mum being like, kids, like like reverberating through the bush and coming in for lunch. And he had a PlayStation 2, I remember, so we'd go and play Battlefield or or like Ratchet and Clank (laughs) So when we got tired or when it got too hot. That was kind of how we spent our time. We didn't really have a TV until I was quite a bit older. How come you didn't have a TV? Is it part of the church thing or? Yeah, it's a church thing, yeah. We had computers sort of, but not like a technology-based family. And at the time I hated it. I was like, I wanted the thing, you know. But, you know, looking back, it's, it was awesome. We were just sort of left to our own devices come every weekend. Both my parents worked full-time and they had four kids in the house. So it was pretty, <laughs> they were pretty busy. So, yeah, we would just sort of run amok. So what's a memory of your childhood that's kind of just pure joy? I remember the first song I wrote with my high school band, which Kieran was in. We'd rehearse like most Friday nights in my garage at the back. It was so loud till like three in the morning. I don't know how my parents, they just slept through it, but that was fine <laughs> by then. <laughs> but yeah, I remember those, like those nights. Like I had no idea at the time that it was so important. I was learning how to write songs and how to work with a band in a room. No one taught us how to do that. We just figured it out. And it was kind of like instinctual. Those moments were coming at a time when in a lot of other parts of my life, sort of feeling like I was unraveling a bit and really struggling with my sense of identity and like who I was and what was my family to me, what was the church to me, like all this stuff that had been so foundational to me all my life, all of a sudden feeling like it was a little... It was on shaky ground and the music creating like that was just the very opposite of that. It was this incredibly exciting moment for me and the first probably sense of like having a love for something. Hmm. How old were you? Uh, 16 probably, 15, 16, yeah. And do you remember what was the first song that you kind of started writing with the band? I'm trying to remember what the... I know the name of it. I know the feeling of it, but I can't remember how it goes. What's the feeling of it? Um, it was about, it's called Good Boy. That's what it was called. And it was like this little sort of trying to be rebellious. One of the lyrics was sit tight and be a good boy for me. And it's like sort of feeling like I was trying to say fuck you to that sort of thing. I'm pretty sure that was the first one. And also there was another song called A Mess. And half of that chorus I used on lunchtime. Mm. song from the new record had like a seven year hibernation and then (laughs) got revived and so on that same token like what's a memory of your childhood that sort of makes you sad that you know you don't even want to think about it something that I remember that is not too dark but I think shaped my Mm -hmm approach with like relationships because that's a really big thing in a church where you're not supposed to kiss before marriage let alone anything else you don't really go on like dates on your own people aren't really trusted to to sort of abstain 
from sexual stuff, so you don't really have that chance to form those relationships. Mm. But I remember I wanted to date this girl that I liked. I remember being told by like the elders, the leadership of the church, all all old dudes, are very involved in people's lives. They're like the therapist and they're the police. And my mom and some people in the church said, "Look, this is like March. You guys can date if by the new year." you're still interested in doing this. I guess assuming that like nine months was a long time for 15, 16 year olds. Mm. I explained this to her and it's still good. We're going strong. Come New Year's, I remember being told you can only date if she comes to church regularly every weekend. Her family was very like non-religious and she would never get to go for that. And I had the time to sort of like pull myself away from it entirely. And so I was too embarrassed to tell her that. And so I just sort of, like, called it off. And I remember, like, she hated me for it. I was so angry about it. I felt like I'd just been, like, deceived. Been waited nine months. And I'm like, fuck, that is such, that's bullshit. That stuck with me for so long because, like, people are just so involved in your life. It's interesting because, like, I lived in a convent <laughs> for, like, six years just because yeah. um, uh, my mom was ill and all the rest of that. And so I live in a Catholic convent. Mm. Um, but, like, what you're talking about is a completely different thing. It's, like, almost cultish, right? Um, totally. C- can you can you say who they are? It's called the Potter's House Church. Yeah. Um, they have a reputation for that. And sometimes I tell people, and they're like, whoa, you're at the Potter's House. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't mind outing them because – they're not good at organization. They control people's lives and they manipulate them and they blackmail them and they take advantage of people who are vulnerable mm. and essentially sire them to the church in a way that makes them feel indebted. And yeah, it's, it's, it's really toxic. And then the fact that I was in Jelton, these things tend to metastasize into something when they are mm. isolated even further. You look at a lot of middle America, how certain religious organizations really get into some weird shit when you're like mm. in a back country because there's not like these regular checks and balances, I think. Mm. There's less need to like integrate with rest of regular secular society. It's sort of interesting how that happens. When did you kind of untangle from that? When you went to university, when you moved to Perth? Essentially just before then, yeah. Like I was kind of in it, but it was when I finished high school. Mm. So I was like in Jelton for a summer and didn't really go and then left and that was it. So when was the first time that you kind of realised that music was like transcendent? It could really take you somewhere. That younger age work that I was talking about when I was rehearsing in the garage, there was, there was a sense of that, but I think I might have conflated it with a lot of different things and I probably didn't. I probably wasn't emotionally intelligent enough to know what it meant then. Mm. Um, it wasn't until Spacey Jane started in March or April of 2016. Yeah. I was like struggling with uni. I was doing an engineering and finance degree that I was extremely disinterested <laughs> in. <laughs> that, you know, that is quite a lot the of, degree. <laughs> yeah. As, it was very demanding. And, you know, it's obviously a lot of contact hours and, the thing about those degrees is that they put you through the ringer because they want to prove that you're capable of thinking in a certain high level way and solving mm. problems and things like that. So it's, it's like a tough degree mm. that I was so disinterested in. And why did you do it then? Why did you pick that? It was pressure from the older powers that be in my life. And like I needed to get out of Geraldton and I wanted to move to Perth. So I wanted to do a degree and I was really good at maths and physics. And <laughs> that was like what I excelled in at school. So that's the thing that I, wanted to do well not wanted to do but I sort of I think I had this idea of it in my head of like all my life I felt very othered and that's obviously it's that's kind of rich coming from you know a white guy I get that but like in terms of the environment that I was in like Mm. being the church kid like I was very much on the outside of like what normal society was like I didn't feel Mm. like I belonged that I was integrated that I was like a part of that I always felt different on the outside and I think something like doing an engineering degree at UWA, it's a good university, was going to put me on the path to like becoming a regular person who's going to be in society. And like, that's, I just wanted that so badly and was desperate for that. And that's sort of a, a way in which I saw myself doing that. Um, 
And, but then, you know, discovered sort of two and a half years into that degree that that's actually not what I wanted. Around that time, Caleb had started rehearsing with three other students from the University of Western Australia. They were drummer Kieran Lama, bassist Amelia Murray, and guitarist Ashton Hardman Le Canoe. Together, the foursome played gigs around Perth as Spacey Jane. started working as a bartender and like I don't like any of these people that I've been to college with that's fine I'm not I don't have an issue with you wanting to do that but that's not the world for me I like these misfits and these people traveling and working that I work with at a bar and I like these people I meet at gigs and like this is where I feel happy and comfortable and like safe and playing shows rehearsing and writing songs again was like I have not felt like this in years like I feel like I truly feel happy and like have purpose. And this is something that I could do for a long time. And I hadn't felt like that since I left home. Caleb felt that sense of belonging, not so much because he had missed home or his family life. It was rather the fact that he had not played music as part of a band in as many years. And it helped that he was with Kieran, a friend from home. What was it like when you first met Kieran in <laughs> Geraldton? Because to me, from what I've been reading, he sounded like he was maybe somebody who moved from Melbourne. So he was like the new kid in town. Did you guys immediately bond because he was a drummer already, wasn't he? Yeah. I don't quite remember what happened. He tells the story of <laughs> that him and my mum allegedly linking and then and sort of his mum being telling my mom to get me to hang out with him because he needed friends. And I, I don't remember that happening. So if that was happening, there was like, they did that subtly. Like they did, I didn't even know I was operating on that. <laughs> play yeah. He was organizing yeah. a play Honestly, for you guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Kieran and I are quite different. Like he listened to hip hop at the time that I met him and he was like big into gaming. So he was like a child of the internet. We just were different, like mm. and connected through music. That was like the only through line. Because he manages the band as well. Yeah, that's right. We're co-managed now, so we signed with a management group in March. So, But Kieran's still on the management team. But yeah, we were solely managed by Kieran and us as a group for like a good six years there. Yeah. Now we, you know, 10 years later, best friends and it's pretty special. Because of the songs you write, when you started the band, there was a real sense of home, that, that feeling of really wanting to belong somewhere and like this craving for something and also somewhere where you can start to process how you were feeling. How was someone like Kieran helpful in like giving you the space? I don't know. I feel like because the two of you were originally in and you've known each other in your other band as well, like you really supportive of each other in different ways. Unlike any other relationship I've ever had, and I don't think I ever will have someone one like mm. that. It's this like absolute trust that we do the right thing by each other, that we care about this band as as if it's the most important thing in the world. There is no safety net mm. for what we do, and so you have to just trust and like you have to believe that everyone's in it and we're all on the same team. That is a strange relationship to have, especially at this age, where like business partners and confidants and we see each other in our most vulnerable states and mm. we have to make make mistakes together and figure out how to not make the mistakes and be friends at the same time and be kind, you know, especially when we were totally self-managed. Um, speaking of Kieran, I think he said something like you had from like 2016 to 2019, you kind of toured nationally, but to crowds of 20 people. Um, and it's like, you know, like how conducive was it for a band like you guys to like rise the ranks in Frio or Perth or WA? Because um, what's it like playing like these small venues to even smaller crowds? Mm. I think people always say that that's a very important part of starting out is like mm. if you can have fun playing to a room of no one then you know like you're on the right track but yeah yes. it's like what was that experience like for you guys we could reflect on it now and say mm. well that was us cutting our teeth learning how to eat shit a little bit so that you know when the good times come you appreciate them now when we do a 300 cap show in the uk or brussels or somewhere in the us it's not like oh what is this like we know how to load in and know how to set up our gear and know how to 
give the crowd all this energy, even if we don't feel like we're getting it back. Like that's a really important lessons for us. But at the time, like we just loved it. It was honestly just never a drag. Like we play like two shows in a night or three shows in a weekend. And I don't know, I honestly can't remember what we thought it was. Like, I don't know if we thought it was like some empire building exercise or like the <laughs> hustle or something like that. We, I don't think we thought like that. We loved it. And like, you know, I look back on those moments so fondly. I specifically remember this show at a now closed club called the Bushka. Mm-hmm. We played to the lead singer of the headline band and one of her bandmates and the bartender. And that was it <laughs> on a Tuesday night. And like, you know, I just, it wasn't embarrassing. Like it wasn't like, Oh, shame. It was just like, that's kind of what you do with gigs. And like, I'm so glad we learned how to play shows like that. In those three years, they built a loyal following of fans around Fremantle and Perth and then across Australia. In 2017, they self-released their first EP, No Way to Treat an Animal. A standout from that EP was Good Grief, a seemingly uplifting song that helped break the EP into the top 30 Australian charts without any institutional support from important Australian youth radio station Triple J. Their debut album, Sunlight, was released in June of 2020 with Good Grief as its first single. Sunlight went to number two on the Australian album chart and number one on the Triple J listeners poll. The album's title was a reference to the sunlight that plants and all living things receive, but that alone isn't enough to sustain life. Recording Sunlight was a challenge, as the foursome tried to juggle university work, raising money to record singles, and eventually dealing with the departure of a band member. We weren't recording an album to begin with at all, because it's such an undertaking. We were just sort of recording more singles to put out. Good Grief is the first single, and that was that was the first one that Triple J picked up as well. But when we released it, it wasn't announced alongside an album rollout or anything like that. It was just mm. putting a song out and... Um, yeah, like you say, like we, we were playing 500 people in all the big cities on the East Coast before Triple J picked that up. And mm. um, so that's something that we like to, you know, hang on to as a sense of like, yeah, we did work hard before that happened. And But, yeah, I was working 60-plus hours a week when we were recording that record. I would be like, I'd be my high-vis and I'd drive straight to the studio after work at 6 p.m. and like do, you know, three or four hours of songwriting and, in the rehearsal studio and then, you know, wake up early and go back to work and Kieran was finishing his degree, Yashin was at uni. Somewhere in that time, Amelia left the band to finish her medical degree and so we'll find a new bass player and we also had just signed with AWOL and Sunlight came out Mm. midway through 2020. Some of the writing was actually done with Amelia and then before you actually rolled out the new album, she left. So was there ever a sense, like, when you first found out that she wasn't going to carry on with the band, was there, like, a sense of panic? Like, oh, my God. Mm. And also, was it, like, a foregone conclusion that you were going to replace her with another female bass player? Mm. Were you, like, quite intentional? We are definitely intentional about trying to find another woman to be in the band. We appreciated the fact that it wasn't just the boys and you could feel the presence of of Amelia in the band. And you, you, it was like, we're grateful for what that brought. And, you know, we're grateful mm. that a young woman fan looks up and sees a woman on stage. And, and also it's awesome to have a female voice in the band. Like that's really cool just from like a practical standpoint. And back to your first question, yeah, we, we were very scared. And like we felt like that was, there was definitely like a sense of like, this is the end of the band. And finding a replacement was hard because we're at a point in the band where there's like a lot of work and we're still not getting paid. Mm. So we need someone who's like, who's mm. going to give up as much time as we do, not get paid essentially, not have any other major projects on the go. You know, that's a lot of things that you need to hit to make that happen. And Pepper graciously was like, I'll do it. And I think her second show was Splendor. And, and like we got paid for like Splendor and two sideshows. We got paid three grand. It costs like five grand just to get us all around the country to do it. Off the bat, she's, she's realizing, oh, we're not going to make money straight away. And she really put in the hard yards. Caleb said Sunlight was an album about the journey from teenager to adulthood. And Good Grief, with its talk of crying in bed, being kicked out of home, feeling like 18 and the guillotine, illustrated how much harder that transition can be when you've had an unstable home life. 
The song Sunny Feel, paired with its raw vulnerability, also tapped into that sense of loss that so many young people were experiencing at the time. And I know you said a, a lot of what you wrote on that album is also like in retrospect mm-hmm. and with regards to a song like Good Grief because that came after like you had a kind of falling out with your mom, isn't it? And then you hadn't spoken to her in a while. Mm. And when you say, I didn't care about things I'm too young to know. Tell me exactly what you were referring to. What are these things that you're too young to know or care about? I think it's specifically in relation to religion and mm. this world of responsibility and this world of ancient guilt, you know, generational guilt mm. that's just so old and so entrenched and I'm just not interested. <laughs> I just, I, that's, I don't want to be saddled with that burden and like I just want to be a kid. You know, that's kind of what it felt yeah. like. It's so funny when you see the title Good Grief, it's like I'm thinking Good Grief Charlie Brown. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, a, it's a kind of jovial, isn't it? Yeah, because Charlie Brown's like this eternal down and out pessimist, but also so lovable and who's mm. still a child. Mm-hmm. That was kind of like also yeah. in there, in the subtext of the song, you know, intentionally mm. or not. Um, so do you speak to your mum still? Um this is me asking as a mum. No, unfortunately, we don't have a relationship like that, you know, which is it's just hard and that's something that I it, I hope that's not a fair thing, you know, but um, it's complex, complex things. Relationships are hard and it's there's a lot of baggage and a lot of things that happened in childhood that are sort of hard to, it's hard to come back from in lots of ways. For the people that did remain in his life, Caleb had to ask for a kind of unconditional love. As heard on this song, Love Me Like I Haven't Changed. friendships, um, some family. And it's, I think, fundamentally about fear of abandonment Mm. and fear of not being to somebody what they need you to be. And so I think, like, it's it's like this desperation to to be like, please, just like, I don't know, I know that I'm not the same. I know that maybe I haven't been as good as I could be, but like Jesus, I, I can't lose this sense of relationship or this love that I need from you. And um, yeah, it comes down to a fear of abandonment, for sure. Another fiercely honest track that minds Caleb's own struggle is Booster Seat, about how in love you have to trust someone implicitly the way a child does a parent and what happens when that trust is broken. Booster Seat was released as a single in the midst of the pandemic and went on to peak at number eight on the ARIA charts. It was certified platinum six months later when the song came in second in the Triple J Hottest 100 poll. <laughs> 
New fans from all over the world were already reaching out to the band, making it known how much they were finding Spacey Jane's songs a source of comfort and solace. Now, there's no demographic that didn't feel the devastating effects of the pandemic. But if you had a teenager who graduated from high school or university, who went from the prime of their lives and all its exciting possibilities to almost two years of existing indoors and online, it's not hard to understand what a particularly cruel blow COVID was for them. Drink a job. It wasn't until Sunlight came out, really, that I understood what music could do to for people. And it's like something that I've always experienced as someone who's loved music and become like infatuated with albums and artists and just, you know, lived in the world of a song or an album and been like, this is like, this takes me away somewhere. And like realizing that I had then achieved that with people and being able to put like a name on that. I mean, that's like, that's without a doubt the greatest joy that I get from music above anything else and to resonate with people, even if they don't necessarily think about the themes in the same way that I do, if they take it, it to mean something else, that's fine because that's what the point of the music is. Um, like that truly is what I'm most grateful for. And like to watch Sunlight do that, to hear people talk about it in all these different ways is like, I don't think, it's something that still hasn't really sunk in yet, I think, and, and something that it's easy to take for granted. But to see people crying in the front row or to have a lyric tattooed on them because it means so much to them is like, it's going to make me cry thinking about it now. <laughs> but it's really just an amazing thing. And that's, you know, I, I could never have dreamed about having that impact on people's lives. And like, I'm really glad that it's not an entirely selfish endeavour because being artistic is a lot of just creating for yourself. And, you know, I'm not trying to say that there's some sort of greater altruistic purpose behind making music, but if it has that impact in some way, then I'm really glad. When people say that, do you also automatically think of where you were when you wrote it, like the dark times that you were writing from? Yeah, I definitely do. And it's, it's hard to, like on stage, there's very much, a, I'm playing a character of the front man it's like the only way that sometimes I can do get through a set and there are moments where you see someone like break down in the crowd and like that sort of comes back to me about the like oh shit like sort of like break the fourth wall a bit and like lose them and Mm. um (laughs) to be honest I try to live through other people's experiences of the song rather than revisit my own every time because that's that's hard to do that's like probably not good for me. It's a blessing to release it, to not have the ownership of it anymore. So what was it like when you first heard that Booster Seat had won ARIA mm-hmm. Song of the Year in 2021? I mean, at that point, where was your life at? Were you still like personally still coping with it a lot? I think by the time we won the ARIA, it felt like, what was it, 2021, like November. Mm. Um, it felt, things felt like a little bit more on track. I mean, music was our job by that point and... We were planning big tours. The second record was wrapping up. There was like a lot happening around it. So, and I, I think like the, the fun thing about awards and industry recognition is like as a band from Perth for one, and also a band that makes like indie rock that is in no way flavor of the month mm. and labels and publications and people don't generally want to get, get behind it. What means the most to us is like 
how many people are streaming and how many people are coming to the shows and who's reaching out to us personally and saying these things. And so I think like it, that's a good measure of success for us. That's something that we'd already seen mm. versus the award. It's like, it's cool to have the big pointy aria, um, <laughs> you know, the weapon that it is. And, but, <laughs> but, you know, the thing about that award that we loved the most, that it was crowd voted mm. and, you know, we're yet to win anything that's from the Aria's industry. <laughs> Don't care, you know, <laughs> literally just don't care. Um, we'll keep doing what we're doing. That's what it means the most to us. Yeah. That people support us. When we won the album of the year on the Triple J Lister poll. Yeah. Like one of the only bands to ever do that twice. Yeah. Like that, that means so much to us. In October last year, Spacey Jane's second album, Here Comes Everybody, debuted at number one on the Australian album charts. It received 200 million international streams, attesting to their growing popularity around the world and resulting in sold-out shows when they eventually set out on their first American tour, taking its name from the working title of Wilco's masterful 2001 album Yankee Hotel Foxtrot an album infamous for how difficult it was to release, from the infighting to being dropped from their label. Remarkably, the band members held steadfast and emerged through the drama with an indelible piece of work that was not only groundbreaking for the band, but also rose to meet that cultural moment in the aftermath of a post-9-11 America. But Spacey Jane's album was met with mixed reviews among critics. I read one review which said how they'd even tried to equate their album with the masterpiece that was Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, the sort of hubris of this young band. Yet, Jeff Tweedy himself signed off on this, and while Spacey Jane's effort is nowhere as watershed, it was tapping into something that Tweedy must have felt was worthy of his support. Did you have to speak to him? Was it like just an email, a Zoom call, or your my people speak to your people type of thing? Yeah. Our, our agent knows a guy that manages Jeff. So I basically just got a letter to him. And then funnily enough, he replied to me. Uh, I didn't see it for like six weeks. And so I just thought that he left us hanging. So I was like, damn, okay, that's hard. And then, and then I finally saw it. I was like, Jesus, I am the one that left him hanging. Like, what an arsehole. So, <laughs> yeah. But he gave us his blessing. He was very great about it. And Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, one of my favorite records of all time. It's cool to have that bit of history with us. And while Here Comes Everybody may not bear the mark of complex sonic experimentation that was Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, it does attempt to try and meet the historical moment that was the pandemic through the lens of young, disaffected millennials. So when you put out this wonderful debut in 2020 and then it becomes increasingly obvious that you can't tour and you sort of said that the only way to then be a musician was to write so you hence the second album but um in your darkest moments what did that look like complete like identity crisis which was exacerbated by the fact that i don't think i dealt with a lot of things from the past anyway Mm. and then a lot of the way that I wrote Sunlight is kind of accidental in terms of the, the candor of it all. And I think they, it just like brought up so much for me and COVID brought up even more. Like just when I sort of thought like I had this life in music and things were going well, that was taken away and it's like, okay, then what am I in? What am I doing with my life? Um, and and at the same time, watching things go well from a distance almost, not, not really knowing if that would last for long and like, it was just very strange. Um, and yeah, writing was the only way I, I, I could feel anchored to this thing that I loved so much. What was the first songs that came out of that period? Uh, I think it was Lunchtime, maybe, or Lots of Nothing. And they also wrote Pulling Through and It's Been a Long Day in that same period. These songs dealt with specific issues that Caleb was going through, from his breakup to drinking too much and massive anxiety for what the uncertain future might hold. But he made an effort to address these themes on a grander scale. For example, he had to move in with his dad when the band couldn't tour any longer and found himself in a cycle of day drinking. So on lunchtime, Caleb speaks to this corrosive culture of binge drinking and behaving badly among young men. I'm 
If you didn't catch it, he sings, In a race to get happy, no sign of the leading pack. I'm the consummate lonely, I'm there to drink and then head back. I wake up at lunchtime, well I don't know what you're talking about, well I'm stuck, catatonic once again. And all this also has consequences for people he loves and those around him. On lunchtime, there is a Australian meal psyche thing like to drink and like idea of getting up at lunchtime. I mean, alcohol mm. also figures quite strongly in this kind of rock and roll lifestyle too. Mm-hmm. Like, so for you, like, have you figured out how to do things in moderation? Yeah. I mean, I've learned the hard way a few times. And like, we just finished the festival run and, and falls, the weekend of falls. I definitely had a couple, a nice big weekend. But like for months prior to that, like, haven't really drank and like I'm just really conscious of the fact that like I mean I don't really like the person I am when I feel like that I feel like I feel very anxious you know mm-hmm. I don't like feeling out of control of myself but we all sort of as a band collectively started to realize maybe about a year ago if we're all partying and we're all staying up late and pushing our sleep schedules as far back as we can it's a very hard job to do and mm-hmm. I look at artists that still do it now I don't know how like these guys are like older than me just going so hard and they somehow mm. seem to have the constitution to get up and get on with it. But yeah, there's a very different person now to who I was a year or two years ago in terms of the partying side of things. I really like the actual sonics of it. It's mm. got a different pace. It seems like it's faster. Maybe there's less space. I don't know if I'm imagining it. But uh, whose idea was it to play it that way? Was it yours? Uh, yeah, that's my, yeah, I mean, I had that tempo when I first wrote it. I messed around with this new tuning that I had. And I literally was like, I want to do a fast song. Like, that was <laughs> that was the thought, the thought process behind why it came out like that. And I think it's like 175 BPM. So it's like far and away the fastest song on the record. And it's just really fun. There's something about the way we write music still as a band, which considers the live implications of it, because we are such a live band. And it's only the last two records that we would ever actually put a song out before we've played it live. Mm. We've been starting with it lately, and it's just like fucking like starts the set. And it's, yeah, you're right, it's busy. Yeah, wow. And on this album, it, it seems to me like there is an attempt to like widen the lens from like your very kind of hyper-specific experiences to also like what other people were going through. Um, mm. And could you speak a little bit about this direction? The desire to change that perspective, I think, came from lockdowns and this sort of collective navel-gazing where everyone was just like so self-absorbed. And that was something that I didn't want to deal with so mm. much. Like mm. it became ridiculous how um, much I just had to keep to looking at myself and sitting with myself and the anxiety that that brought was, mm. was difficult. And so there was this like opportunity to maybe be less inward looking and to like consider the time that I'm writing about in sunlight from a broader perspective about like, what is been like for people to just grow up right now what's it like to be 20 it's such a scary time and the Mm. idea that like your late teens and early 20s are supposed to be the greatest moment of your life is such a lie for so many people and then what do you do when it's not the best time of your life and no one seems to care or understand that like and like everyone else has had the best time ever like how do you reconcile those two facts in your mind that that age. So that became something I sort of obsessed over a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it worked. And like a a song like Sitting Up, a song that for me kind of really attempts to make like a more universal thing and like, Mm. and it's so specific. And I actually love that, you know, that that kind of anxiety and this kind of, I feel like it's a male thing, but obviously women do it too, of like getting drunk and falling downstairs. Mm. All those things just paint such clear images in my mind.
Yeah, it's this crazy false bravado thing that dudes in their, when they're 17, 18, 19 have. Like, it's, it's wild. Like, I think about how cocky I was when I, on the inside, I was just falling apart. <laughs> like, I had no idea who I was. Yeah. Mm-hmm like you've mentioned, this kind of really speaks to this idea of the male models that we have. For someone like you, you've said when you were 18, you would have been grateful if you had someone talk about this. Male models who were vulnerable. For you, you know, who were the role models that were available to you, be it on TV Mm. or the music you listened to, or even just the people in your immediate surroundings? Uh, Two of my biggest role models and support people are Ashley and Kieran. And it's like they maybe grew up a bit quicker than I did in that early period of the band, they were very gracious towards me. I always remember that. They let me fuck up a lot and taught me how to be gracious with people mm. in a way that I hadn't been taught before. Like, taught me how to let things go and, yeah, the two most important people in my life in that period. Someone else is our agent, Sloney. He took a different approach. Basically, he is like a no-bullshit, hard-ass kind of guy that taught us how to stand up for ourselves in an industry that is notoriously exploitative and not good to young artists Mm. he had our back and like i'm really grateful to him for that who were some of the kind of role models but they weren't good for you like you had to look beyond them like people that perhaps weren't as helpful as yeah yeah they don't don't have that vulnerability that like this is the way you be a man Mm. i mean i actually uh when i came to university here there was definitely a macho like Mm. a real kind of misogynist almost Mm -hmm. feel about this kind of yob culture yeah yob it's a it's ages, but yeah (laughs) honestly it's like it's everything (laughs) like you're bombarded with it in across all popular culture and to point out specific individual examples of that would be to like give them more weight than Mm. they deserve when it's just across the board especially in regional australia rural australia I think about now the way we can talk about mental health and mm. how it's discussed in schools. And like, I just cannot once remember it being discussed in my school. I just don't remember it. It's wild to me that it was really only a decade ago or 10, 12, 13 years ago when I was in the middle of high school, those sorts of things weren't touched. And so I think that just permeates all sorts of cultural representations of manhood and blokehood in Australia. It just seems to be breaking down faster than I can keep up with, which is cool. Hard Light is another song on the album about an issue that up to recently was rarely discussed among young men. Like is a metaphor for anxiety. Caleb tells me for him, anxiety is like a light slipping under the door, but it feels evil, like it's coming from something he doesn't understand. And in this instance, it rears its head in his relationship. She asks, This theme of anxiety is pervasive and it crops up again in another song about the end of a relationship. Turn green and wave her on 
it's been a long day. Mm-hmm. Like really painfully obvious that a relationship has come to an end, and like maybe during COVID. Yeah. And I think it would have been particularly hard because you had nowhere to turn, right? There's like there's no distractions. Yeah, it was. I was already feeling like that sort of loss of identity. Like a lot of people were. Like my job was completely on hold, and then you know a relationship is such an important part of your identity. So you lose that as well. The thing that caused the breakdown was COVID. It was this like reckoning that you had to do with yourself. And then now that breakdown in the relationship was contributing to that even more so. It's like this vicious cycle that fed into itself. So yeah, it's she time for breakup. got into relationships and got out of them during COVID. I feel like a lot of people were kind of looking for someone to like help them feel grounded, like they had an anchor. So the last song on the album, Pulling Through, um, and uh, I love the song and I like how you put it in the back, even though you wrote the song quite early on. Mm. in my head, and things I this is one of the songs that you kind of was set apart from the rest of the album in in a lot of ways because there's something about the quality of the sonics but also it's so hopeful Mm. And even words like, if it feels like failure, it's probably good for you. Just really kind of coming to terms with, well, in order for growth to happen, you have to have this failure. Mm. And I also love the harmonies that come from Pepper's voice. Is that her? Because That's Pepper, that, yeah. That is also like lovely. And I know there's like one or two moments in the album where you can hear her voice more clearly. But that one resonated with me. It's like, mm. how did that come about to like include more of Pepper's harmonies? Yeah, it was like a solution to the verse is quite low on my range and the chorus is quite high on my range. And so being like an very well-trained singer, it's hard for me to temper my volume and the energy. And so you felt like the verse was really low down energy, which was cool. It was like a good feeling. And the chorus had just so much going on uh, as a way of trying to like bring them closer together. We put Pepper's like harmony over. So we'll try it a few harmonies over the verse and each one felt a bit distracting. Mm. And it was like when it got to the harmony part, be like, oh, there's a harmony. This is why you just sing an octave over the whole verse. And then we'll just like figure out where to put it in. And every version we tried just didn't sound as good as when we left it on for the whole thing. And we're just like, that's, that's cool. It works. <laughs> it's really cool. It's funny sending, like, I sent her the lyrics of a messenger. And I, we always we always do this. Like, whenever she's singing harmonies, I'll send her something so she knows what she's singing. And it just looks like her and I are having a terrible breakup or a really bad heart-to-heart because I'm sending her these, like, extremely dramatic messages. I don't want to ask, but you already said it.
So for both these albums and much of your earlier singles and EP, there's a lot of going back to a certain period of your life, you know, mm. that journey from teenager to adulthood. I mean, in some ways, it's like, obviously, you're going to write about that because of your age, right? Mm. Um there's a few articles here and there about, you know, that you're a singer-songwriter who speaks to, like, the COVID generation and particularly speaking out on mental issues for men. So do you sort of um, see yourself kind of getting tired of those labels and wanting to, like, move on, explore other areas of life in your songwriting? Or do you think it's always going to be part of who you are and hence, like, the band's DNA? Mm. I, I wondered about that a little bit when we put the second record out because there were people asking questions about my, you know, mental health and my personal life going out to audiences that were much larger than before. So all of a sudden it felt like there were real consequences to what I was saying. And there was like, okay, like I have to understand that this is going out to a lot of people, that this is like something very deeply personal to me, that I have myself opened up to many people in the world mm. but it's funny like I don't know I'll figure that out when it comes to the next batch of writing and I think the biggest thing is just like how much I talk about it because mm. I could write a song about anything and if someone says what, what does this mean I'm just gonna say you know what I don't know <laughs> figure it out and I guess like I sort of always have that ability to do that um and in terms of what sort of what the label is about like what I'm speaking to when I'm doing it I, it's fine to if people say this or that about it you know I'm maybe it's true maybe I don't always agree with it mm. but I'll just keep making the music that I want to make and and making it for the our fans and like I really appreciate them and what we get to do and so like how it's sort of interpreted I, I think is not as important as how each individual person sees it interprets it but also surely you have some happy cheesy songs in you now <laughs> <laughs> because you've always said that, like, sad songs yeah. are easier to write. So you much know? easier. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> they still feel so cheesy to me. I'll have a think about it. Uh, there might be some things that I've written lately. It's, I've been writing with lots of other people lately, so they sort of temper how macabre it all is because you don't want to get too, like, fucking emotional with someone you've met for half an hour. Yeah, we'll see. In a world where we're often so quick to want people going through grief or hardship of any kind to move on and feel better, we sometimes forget that it's okay to feel sad. It serves its own function. And for now, Caleb himself is happy to keep writing these songs from his own experiences. Anyone who has ever put a sad song on also knows the value in listening to one. And that's what Caleb wants people to get out of their music. I want people to not feel like they have to be happy all the time and that they can like revel in sadness. And that's not something you need to change immediately. Sometimes it's the worst, sometimes it's the future, sometimes it hurts. That's if you even feel it. There is nothing up, or anyone can tell you that I was at the start. You've been listening to Under the Radar Podcast featuring Caleb Harper from Spacey Jane. This episode, the last in Season 3, was produced by me, Celine Tierbocchi, and executive produced by Mark Redfin. Additional editing was provided by Azine Samari. Additional music from Lily Sloan. Our resident legal eagle is Deborah Davis-Hahn. Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print magazine and website founded in 2001 by Mark and Wendy Redfin. You can find us at www.undertheradarmag.com or get a copy of our latest print issue. If you can, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash under underscore the underscore radar. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. If you like this episode, please rate the podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Follow us so you don't miss an episode. Till next time, thank you for listening.